Okay, you on eight. You on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. We are back for part four of the Physiologically Difficult Airway miniseries. This is the final installment in the four-part miniseries. Just as a reminder, we are covering this because traditionally, the anatomically difficult airway has gotten all of the attention, but the physiologically difficult airway is arguably way more dangerous. The inspiration for this episode is from a review paper published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2015 titled The Physiologically Difficult Airway. We are covering the four most common scenarios that make the airway physiologically difficult. So far, we've talked about hypoxia, hypotension, and metabolic acidosis. Today, we'll be covering acute right ventricular failure. If you haven't listened to the other three episodes, please go do that first. I also cannot stress enough that it takes a few times of reading, listening, and thinking about all of these topics before you're going to feel like you can master them. That's absolutely true. All right, let's jump right in. What is the difference between the RV, or the right ventricle, and the LV, the left ventricle? The LV, the left ventricle, is a thick-walled pump that is meant to pump blood to the entire body and deal with any pressure changes. So not so much volume, but pressure changes that might arise. So when you are squatting with heavy weights at the gym and your blood pressure goes to 300 over 200, that's temporarily no problem at all for the LV to handle. It's thick-walled and it's strong enough to do that. The RV is different. The RV is a volume structure. So it's thinner walled and its job is to supply blood to the pulmonary vasculature and the left atrium, a much lower pressure system that uh, doesn't really deal with any changes in pressure and it doesn't have to until one of the things that we're going to talk about today happens. So there are changes in volume in the form of venous return and preload, but it is not built for big changes in pressure. When you get a big change in pressure, this is what makes it fail. Pulmonary hypertension, a.k.a. pulmonary arterial hypertension, that's what's going to make it fail. Okay, so what causes pulmonary arterial hypertension? Quite a few things can cause that uh, disease called pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary artery hypertension, also known as pulmonary hypertension. We might use all those interchangeably. There are a few different classes of pulmonary arterial hypertension, and the World Health Organization is the, the body who defines them all. The one that I think is most relevant to us is the acute massive pulmonary embolism, in other words, the a big PE, which is technically class four pulmonary hypertension. Class one is when the arteries in the pulmonary vasculature constrict idiopathically at the endothelial level, in other words, the inside aspect of the arterial, that inside wall that we had to memorize for our anatomy test in paramedic school. These people that have this class one pulmonary arterial hypertension will usually be wearing oxygen when you see them and they'll tell you that they have pulmonary hypertension. It's a really terrible disease to have and it most often affects young uh, women. Some of them will like even have these pumps hooked up to their, uh, to their body that is constantly infusing a medicine that dilates the pulmonary arteries just the same way you'd have an insulin pump, but except that it's a medicine affecting the pulmonary arterial system. 
class two is caused by left ventricular disease. Class three is due to lung disease like COPD. And class five is basically everything not covered by the other four classes. Those are not uh, that important for our lessons today um, and what we're going to be talking about today. How you diagnose these, it's diagnosed by having elevated pressures on an echocardiogram or an ultrasound of the heart, or mainly by doing a right heart catheterization where they'll find evidence of elevated pressure. And then once you have the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, you work backwards to try and figure out the cause and what class it's going to fall into. All right. That's a lot of information and definitely not something worth memorizing. Definitely not something that I have memorized in my own practice, but I do think that it's worth having a knowledge of some of these various classes, as well as the treatments form, because you might come across a patient who's on one of these uh, vasodil pulmonary vasodilators. Yeah, it is not worth memorizing at all. I don't have it memorized. I think the two cases that we in the emergency department and you guys in the field are most likely to see is our patients that are hypoxic, hypotensive, and tachycardic from either a massive pulmonary embolism or decompensated class one pulmonary artery hypertension, that, that class of people who have uh, disease at the endothelial level. Lucky for us, the principles of managing these people are generally the same in the field, and uh, and there's essentially no difference because we are limited by what we have available to us in the back of the truck. Okay, so we're talking about high pressures in the pulmonary vasculature, either from a clot or from just uh, disease in the vessels itself that's causing a backup into the right ventricle. So what is actually happening in the body that makes these people so sick? Well, either a giant stinking blood clot is in the main pulmonary artery or every single millimeter of those uh, pulmonary arteries are so clamped down from that class one pulmonary arterial hypertension that the right ventricle can't push deoxygenated blood into the lungs to get oxygenated. In fact, in the worst cases, the arteries have a higher pressure than the atria and vena cava. So through the path of least resistance, you're going to get backwards flow from the RV backwards to the atria and vena cava. This is a so-called right to left shunt. So if we're not getting blood past the lungs, that makes these patients hypoxic for sure. But also the LV isn't getting any venous return or preload. So these patients are going to be hypotensive too. Is that true? Yeah, exactly. And to, to make it even worse, the RV is so full of backed up blood that it starts to bow into the left ventricle, making the left ventricle even less functional and fail. So this is going to create two scenarios from previous episodes then, both hypoxia and hypotension. Three, Ross, that hypotension and hypoxia will quickly lead to a metabolic acidosis. Right. In a patient who has impaired gas exchange in the lungs, so they can't compensate with the respiratory system, this is terrifying. Okay, how do I treat all three of these? Treating the hypoxia and hypotension will hopefully result in a clearance of the acidosis. The most important part of this is to put them on the most amount of oxygen that is physically possible in your rig. Oxygen is a potent pulmonary arterial vasodilator. This isn't the person to start with four liters via nasal cannula to get them to 90% and call it good. You want a nine rebreather turned all the way up and you want a nasal cannula on at the same time turned all the way up, just like we talked about in our hypoxia episode. If for some reason your ambulance happens to have heated high flow nasal cannula, do that. That is the best option. Okay, but what about CPAP or, or BiPAP? Talk, talk to me about this. Usually this is the way that I can give people the most amount of oxygen. Well, remember, Ross, that the those are positive pressure ventilation methods, PPV. And PPV causes two things, decreased venous return and 
increased intrathoracic pressure. Both of these will worsen the right ventricular failure. If you absolutely have to put them on positive pressure ventilation, then use the absolute lowest PEEP possible. Okay, and for the hypotension, I'm guessing we just do our standard fluid bolus? No. So remember that the right ventricle is super dilated with fluid. And when you give intravenous fluid, you are essentially giving it to the right ventricle. So more fluid will equal more bowing into the left ventricle and less RV systolic function, which will just make more and worsening hypotension. And Ross, how are we taught to respond to more hypotension? Well, like I just wanted to do is give more fluid. And if that doesn't work and they're still hypotensive after a bolus of fluid, what do you do? I suppose I give more fluid again. Exactly. This is where the so-called RV spiral of death comes from. Well-meaning providers see a low blood pressure and they try to fix it. But this is making everything worse, resulting in a positive feedback loop that quickly kills the patient. You give them fluid, the right ventricle fails more, so they get more hypotensive. You give them fluid, the left ventricle and the right ventricle fail more, so you give more fluid. And before you realize it, the patient is dead. It's worth noting that it is very, very rare for a patient with a PE, a pulmonary embolism, to also for some reason be in profound hypovolemic shock and need any fluid at all in their system. For the class one pulmonary arterial hypertension patients, they almost always need diuresis and not fluid. And that's true even if you have them on pressors. Okay, so if you can't give fluid, then what do you do in response to this hypotension? Well, I, I didn't say you can't give fluid. You can try a small bolus like 250 to 500 milliliters, but if it makes the patient worse, you're screwed. And if it makes them better, I wouldn't push your luck past that. If it's available to you, I would prefer you to do a presser medication rather than fluids. Okay. So you put them on a non-rebreather and a nasal cannula and you start a presser such as norepinephrine or epinephrine drip, and they are still tachycardic, hypoxic, and hypotensive. Now they're becoming uptunded and you need to take their airway. This is what we're talking about. What do you do with this physiologically difficult airway? I think you got so used to me saying avoid intubation in the other three podcasts that you skip straight to the scenario where I can't say that. Exactly. Well, in, in that scenario, uh, assume they will code. If you push RSI drugs in your system, and in other words, if your protocols allow you to do that, uh, they will probably code during that uh, induction process or right after intubation. If you're in a system, which is the system that I had to work in, where you have to wait for them to be able to tolerate the laryngoscope blade, in other words, go unresponsive, well, then they will almost certainly die during intubation. And that's not your fault. Okay, so just like all the other episodes, you're going to want to try to avoid intubation at all costs if you can, because this is likely to, this is potentially going to be a deadly scenario. That being said, RSI drugs, which are likely to decrease your venous return, decrease your blood pressure, are likely going to make things worse and potentially increase your risk of coding. And that being said, if you waited so long that they're unresponsive, not breathing on their own, then they're essentially about to code as it is. There is a scenario where you can try awake intubation. And this is something we may attempt in the emergency department for these patients in an attempt to avoid some of the negative hemodynamics of these drugs. This is something that some systems may still do that, you know, when I was a paramedic at Denver Health, we would do, and that's a nasal intubation. 
while they're while they're awake while they're still awake right so this is a patient who's hypotensive hypoxic you cannot fix it no matter what you do not want to give them rsi drugs because that can negatively affect their cardio uh, hemodynamics that have already been affected by the pulmonary hypertension. And so rather than put them to sleep, stop their breathing, worsen all of that scenario, you can attempt something while they're already awake. And that's a nasal intubation and see, and that might be a, a safer scenario than say RSI or waiting until they're already pericode. I did not learn how to nasally intubate somebody in paramedic school. And I don't even think I could do it now. The way that it's done in the street in Denver. Um, so I'd really want to caution you if you've never trained in it and done a practice one, uh, it's a really tough skill. And I, I really admire the paramedics who are good at this. It's a finesse for sure. So, so let's talk about, you don't have that in your skill set. You do need to intubate this person. So what are we going to do before you intubate? What, what do we need to do to prepare for this? So b before you intubate, crack open your code box, break the seal, pop it open, and then I would prime your epi syringes. Uh, if you have any premix pressors, I would start them and get them running IV, even if the patient's you know quasi normal blood pressure. I would just have it going into their system before you start the intubation. If you don't have the premix stuff, then you can make a dirty epi drip like we talked about on the dirty epi episode, um, and then put the pads on them. They're gonna code so get ready, put the pads on them, get their shirt off uh, or cut it off. Um, and then explain to every single person on the team that this patient's probably going to code. It's no one's fault. And we're going to assign roles for the code right now so that everyone is ready to try and get ROSC as soon as possible when that patient um, has a peri-intubation arrest. Then you do what you do to intubate them as fast as possible. And if and when they code, you do high quality ACLS. And from that point, it's, it's simple. That sounds terrifying, um, but it sounds like one of those scenarios where you check your own pulse and to quote the house of God, remember the patient is the one with the disease, not you. Exactly. This is not your fault. This is not your fault at all. You listened to this episode. You avoided fluid overloading them. You maximized their pre-oxygenation. You maximized their blood pressure. You did everything you could do to avoid taking their airway, but eventually the disease won and you had to react to that. All right, Matt. So to summarize quickly of my understanding after chatting with you through this, and, and I'll let you summarize your own at the end, all of these disease processes, no matter what the classification is, leads to an acute increase in pressure within the lungs. Now, maybe that's a disease within the blood vessels themselves. Maybe that's an acute PE that has a sudden increase in rise in pressure within the lungs. That rise in pressure is too much for our thin-walled, weak right ventricle to overcome. The right ventricle is normally willing to accept lots of fluid and pass that on to the low volume or the low pressure lungs. And it's not prepared to do this in this acute rise. And that causes the right ventricle to fail. If the right ventricle is failing, you're going to get a backup of fluid into that right ventricle so much so that it might actually bow into the left ventricle. And not only are you not getting blood into the left ventricle, but now you have bowing of the septum into the left ventricle, limiting the amount of volume that can fill that space. All of this is going to lead to hypotension. Not only that, but you're not getting blood through the lungs. And so you're going to have hypoxia as well. And because you're not oxygenating your blood, you're going to end up with a metabolic acidosis. It's a terrible spiral of death. The thing that you want to avoid is further positive pressure because that's going to increase the pressure in lungs, which we already talked about is the problem. So if you can avoid intubation, you want to avoid intubation. 
if you have to intubate because nothing is fixing the problem, then you have to intubate, but be pre- but be prepared to start CPR. This is the highest risk patient for coding during your intubation attempt. If you have awake intubation in your system, if you know how to nasally intubate, consider that as an option. If you're gonna give RSI, realize the negative hemodynamics that are gonna cause possible arrest in that patient. But this, your hand has been forced and just be prepared to deal with the outcome. Couldn't have said it better myself.